0: Welcome to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. On this episode, Acton's Director of Research, Sam Gregg, breaks down liberation theology, a Marxist movement that began in the 20th century and took root in the Catholic Church in Latin America. This past month, a three-week long synod on the Amazon wrapped up at the Vatican, a summit that was organized to foster conversation on ministry and ecological concerns in the Amazon region. But the synod also reveals how, as Sam says, liberation theology never really went away. Afterwards, we take a look at what life was like behind the Iron Curtain. This Saturday, November 9, marks the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Tom O'Boyle, who worked as a correspondent for the Wall Street Journal at the time and covered the events that led up to the fall of the Berlin Wall, comes onto to the show to tell stories of what he witnessed while he was there. To check out all the articles and books that we mention in this episode, you can read the show notes, and those are posted at Acton's blog at blog.acton.org. That's blog.acton, A-C-T-O-N.org.
1: Welcome to Acton Line. I'm your host, John Caritas. Today we're speaking with Samuel Gregg, Director of Research at the Acton Institute, and specifically his recent article in Catholic World Report titled, From Marks to Gaia. This was published on October 23rd. It looks at the recent Amazon Synod in the Roman Catholic Church, and looks at how liberation theology has morphed into liberation ecology. Welcome to the podcast, Sam.
2: John, thanks for having me on. It's good to be with you.
1: Before we get into the article itself in the Synod, can we do a little refresher course on liberation theology? Can we look at its historical roots and how it has morphed, like many things Marxist, into an environmental ideology? Can we start there?
2: Well, the roots of liberation theology really go back to the 1960s, like many other things in our day and age. And one of the things about liberation theology is that while it gained expression in Latin America, particularly towards the end of the 1960s in the thought of, of theologians like Gustavo Guterres, the reality is, is that the roots of liberation theology, intellectually speaking, do not lie in Latin America. The genealogy of these ideas is very clear. They go back to uh, German, primarily German theologians writing in the 1950s and 1960s who were writing in the realm of what's called political theology and thinking of theologians like um, Jean-Baptiste Metz, who basically were looking for ways to give political expression to the gospel. So that's one thing. The second thing that was going on at the time was that a good number of theologians, again, in the German-speaking world, were dabbling with dialogue with Marxism. They were very concerned about trying to make theology, particularly Catholic theology, a conversation partner with German philosophy, people like Kant, people like Hegel— but also uh, what, what's called the Frankfurt School, which is essentially a Marxist school of, of sociology and way of looking at the world. And many of the people who later became leaders of liberation theology in Latin America, in Central America, South America, etc., studied in Europe in the 1950s and 1960s under these people. If you look at all of them, Guterres, Leonardo Boff, uh, John Sobrino, if you look at all these figures, they all studied in European universities, late 1950s, mid-1960s, etc., which, of course, was a time of considerable upheaval. So many of them go back to Latin America, and they start applying and trying to develop some of the, these ideas in a Latin American context. And there's no doubt at all that the, per, the, the thinker and the thought that they thought was important to, quote-unquote, dialogue with was... Marxism, because Marxism was seen as giving a type of empirical understanding of the world, a way of unlocking the keys to understanding history, the march of history, a way of trying to understand what's going on in the economy. So many liberation theologians entered into quote-unquote dialogue with Marxist thought, Marxist philosophy, Marxist economics.
1: Now these were these were intellectuals, lay and cleric. When they returned to Latin America, how was it that what they had learned in these schools in Europe took hold and became popular once they came back to their home countries?
2: Well, there are several reasons. One is that the church in much of Latin America uh, for centuries had been part of the political establishment. And so to that extent, the Church was seen as part of the apparatus of oppression, I guess that's what you'd call it, part of the way that politics is done in much of Latin America. And many many of these theologians wanted to change that. They wanted to shift the Church so that it was perceived to be on the side of the quote unquote poor. So it wasn't as if they were arguing for neutrality on the part of the Church. They were arguing for the Church— opting for the political left. They're very clear about this. They didn't make any bones about hiding this at all. So that's one thing. Secondly, uh, Latin America at this particular point in time was in a great deal of turmoil. You had right-wing military dictatorships. You had communist insurgencies. You had a great deal of political instability, and a lot of people had to make choices about which side they were on. And in the case of many of the liberation theologians, they opted for some of these radical left-wing political movements. Again, they're quite open about this. They they never tried to disguise this. And they were also looking at a continent, which is really the continent that has been left behind when you think about it. If you think about the 20th century, we've seen Southeast Asia, we've seen China, we've seen uh, parts of Africa, parts of um, India, the Indian subcontinent – start to slowly move out of poverty, to move towards more societies with larger middle classes, uh, more capital, more wealth, more economic growth. But Latin America is the big exception. It has remained very much a society, societies that seem unable to find political stability and seem unable to break out of some of the very dysfunctional economic systems that they find themselves in. Many liberation theologians saw the church as a vehicle by which one could force change through society, given that church is so influential in politics and in culture in that part of the world. So for many of them, the church and, and living the life of a Christian became very much reduced to politics everything was
1: seen as political. Yeah, and you've got a a region with grinding poverty. Nothing seems to have worked. So the liberation theologians conceived of the Church as the lever with which they could finally break up this system which they saw as being historically oppressive with no solution in sight.
2: Well, they also believed that the church needed to align itself with those who were economically oppressed. Now, it's certainly the case that if you look at the history of the Christian church, it has always had a special concern for those who are poor. And poor in classic Christian terms, of course, doesn't just mean materially poor. It can mean spiritually poor, it can mean poor in terms of education, It means poor in terms of deprivation, morally poor, spiritually poor, economically poor. Now, if you're dialoguing with Marxists, you're not probably going to be very interested in spiritual property or moral property. You're going to be primarily interested in economic property.
1: It's almost purely materialistic.
2: Well, if you play with Marxism, that's the path you go down because Marxism is a fundamentally materialist philosophy. As Marxists themselves will tell you, they don't pretend it's anything else but that. And when they move down this path, We shouldn't be surprised that they said, well, we need to align ourselves with the economically poor and we have to fight for the poor. Now, what's ironic about all this is that at this time in the late 1970s and early 1980s that this particular expression started to float around Latin America. The church opted for the poor and the poor opted for the evangelical. And I think that's a very insightful uh, one-sentence description of what happened in Latin America in this particular period. The Church—not ex- well, all the Church, but many people within the Church, many priests, lots of theologians, lots of members of religious orders, some bishops, even the occasional cardinal or two, opted very much for the political left and political action on the part of those who are economically poor— Yet, this didn't seem to work very well in terms of bearing witness to the gospel insofar as it didn't result in lots and lots of people turning to Catholicism. It resulted in many respects in many people leaving the Catholic Church, joining various evangelical churches throughout Latin America. And I think the reason for that is that evangelical churches in Latin America at the time talked about God. They talked about Christ. They talked about the Bible, and many Latin Americans got tired of going to Catholic churches and hearing nothing but left-wing politics.
1: Those searching for Christ didn't find them there at these quasi-Marxist uh, rallies, so they had to s- seek him elsewhere.
2: Exactly, and that is, that has gone on to this day. The other thing, of course, that's happened is that it's not just a lot of people in Latin America have left the Catholic Church and joined evangelical churches. A lot of Latin Americans have left Christianity full stop and have embraced various versions of secularism. I find it interesting in this regard that you're not seeing a lot of growth of evangelical churches compared to what it was like in the 1980s. What you're seeing is that a lot of people, some people move from Catholicism to evangelical churches. A lot, some people move from Catholicism to secularism. Some people move from evangelicalism to secularism. So it's a much more complicated phenomenon, a picture when you look at what's going on overall in Latin America. But the bottom line is that Latin Amer- uh, that liberation theology did not do anything in terms of bolstering the church's evangelical witness throughout Latin America. It very much and very quickly devolved into left-wing political activism.
1: Yeah, where it did almost nothing for the economic situation of the people that they had claimed they were there to help, Right.
2: Well, that's the other thing. Michael Novak, in a very important book that was published in 1986 called Will It Liberate, he made the observation that the liberation theologians were very vague about what it is they actually wanted to achieve. They talked vaguely about socialism. They talked vaguely about common ownership, etc. But they really couldn't come up with programs of their own for substantially reversing and dealing with problems of poverty except for constant political mobilization. And to the extent that they actually articulated an economic program, which they really didn't, um, uh, they opted for more or less uh, socialism. So you had liberation theologians, particularly those who served in, say, the Sandinista government in the 19, um, 1980s, going to places like Moscow and saying this is the future, etc. Now, of course, when communism collapsed... In 1989, to 1990, and 1991, this left a lot of liberation theologians in somewhat of a quandary, because it turned out that the future was not the future as they thought it had been.
1: Which brings us to your article from Marx to Gaia. So the Berlin Wall falls. Uh, Marxism, communism is discredited, but the liberation theologians made a quick pivot to environmental ecological concerns. Tell us what that looked like as they started to make that transition, and what was their motivation?
2: Well, I think there's a couple of motivations. One is it's very hard to invest your entire career as a theologian or whatever it is you're doing and then get halfway through it only to to discover that the whole thing was built on false premises. Most people are, are unwilling to admit that. And what they often do, particularly if they've been influenced by Marxism, is they look for some other form of political ideology that will fill the faith gap in their life, that will fill the gap that was previously filled by another ideology. And the figure who's very important here is a Brazilian theologian named Leonardo Boff, who was a liberation theologian in the 1980s, who was um, suspended from exercising um, his faculties as a theologian in the 1980s because his teaching was clearly at great variance from received Catholic orthodoxy he's since left the priesthood he left his religious order he has since married etc but in the early by the early 1990s he quickly started moving from outright uh, political agitation with a heavy marxist tinge towards environmental agitation. Now, I don't think the Marxism actually went away that much. If you look at his writings, the whole language, the whole structure, all the concepts that he uses still are very tinged with Marxist thinking. But the focus moved away from class struggle and much more towards environmental struggle. And what's interesting is that, like Boff and others, started to Get very interested in what was called Gaia theory. This was the uh, a type of scientific theory of the nature of the Earth and universe that was hypothesised by the chemist James Lovelock in the 1970s. And basically, Lovelock's thesis was that all living entities all organic things, so plants, animals, etc., and all organic things like oxygen metals, they're all part of one self-regulating, perhaps even one self-directed entity. So the world itself assumes a type of identity. The name given to this was Gaia. And where does the word Gaia come from? Gaia is the name of one of the most primordial of Greek goddesses, and it means basically the personification of the earth itself. So, in many respects, what we see here, in the case of some of these liberation theologians and their embrace of some of these ideas, I think is, first of all, this continuation of this Marxist emphasis upon struggle, 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 against injustice, against the oppressor, against the establishment, whoever it is, has been identified as the enemy, but also moving into the direction of what I think is clearly a type of pantheism. Pantheism, of course, is when we uh, accord a type of divine status God's creation rather than reserving that, that divine status for God himself.
1: If I may, I want to quote a line or two from your article in which you talk about just this point, and you're, you explain how both Judaism and Christianity moved the ancient world away from this type of paganism. And you write, quote, Judaism and Christianity played the pivotal role in de- divinizing the natural world, They thus helped sweep aside the pagan religions of Greece, Rome, Egypt, and Babylon, which irrationally ascribed divine qualities to elements like water and activities such as war. Certainly, the scriptures present the created world as good, but they don't portray the natural world as perfect or claim that nature is somehow intrinsically better than or equal to humans for therein lie slippery slopes to syncretism and paganism. Now, let's fast forward to the synod, technically known as the Synod of Bishops for the Pan-Amazon region, in which, and help us understand this, um, indigenous peoples were often, uh, indigenous peoples were honored, and they found a place there in this synod in Roman in October. And as Pope Francis himself said, Indigenous peoples who are, quote, often forgotten and without the prospect of a serene future. Now, fair enough, but uh, the Synod seemed to engage with this just this type of syncretism that you talked about in the uh, liberation ecology. Help me understand that.
2: If you look at what's called the preparatory document for this particular Synod, so this is a document that's put out for discussion. Uh, before the synod, and it's given to the, everyone can read it, but it's particularly directed to those who were attending the synod, all of whom, by the way, were chosen by the Pope. They were not elected, as is normally the case. But what's interesting about this is that if you read that particular preparatory document, you see quite a lot of, frankly, pseudo-pantheistic ideas being expressed. Christ gets one or two mentions, but there's much more emphasis upon the sacredness of the earth. The earth and the natural world is acquiring the types of characteristics that would normally be limited to a deity. So that was a, a particular concern. Another particular concern associated with this was this, frankly, highly romantic view of Indigenous peoples and the and and the world that they lived in, both during, before, and after the conquest by the Spanish and the Portuguese in the 16th and 17th centuries. There's a fair amount of Rousseauian noble savage language in that particular document. It's very, very clear. And this, if you read, you think about it. Um, the argument was always, well, this is what people in the indigenous world are saying. And I remember reading and thinking, really? They think of themselves as noble savages? Do they really ascribe the type of of characteristics to nature that this document says they do? Now, I have no doubt that some do. I also have no doubt that some don't. Some are actually serious Christians who have uh, realized that divinizing the world is completely inconsistent with the Christian gospel. Now, uh, at the Synod itself, there was a fair amount of discussion about some of these particular ideas. And when you read the document that was produced by the Synod itself, which was voted upon and approved by all those attending, it had largely been stripped of the Romantic uh, pseudo-pantheistic, noble, savage um, themes and words and language, largely stripped of that. Not completely, but more or less, uh, it, That or anything that was left in that regard had been relegated to a relatively minor level. But uh, what I find interesting about this is we see the same pattern. Notions of Gaia, notions of a world that is a type of living entity, etc. Uh, that if you touch one aspect of the natural world, then you're necessarily interfering with it and you're somehow disrupting the balance, et cetera, et cetera. This is all very Gaia theory. By, and by the way, most scientists think that Gaia theory is nonsense. It's been very much repudiated by all sorts of people. And even Lovelock, who died a few years ago, he had retracted a fair amount of some of the things that he'd said in the 1970s and 1980s. I mean, it was a classic case of uh, Christians getting interested and influenced by ideas that had emerged in the secular world long after a fair number of secular people had simply moved on from it. You know, the old thing of how the Church gets interested in the, the, what were the hip ideas 20 years ago in the present. That's a continual problem, I think, you find in many Christian confessions. So uh, if you read the document itself, I think it's relatively uh, harmless. I don't think that it will result in any significant change in the Amazonian region, either in terms of politics or economics or even the way that Christians live their life there. Um, it's it's interesting to note, for example, that lots of evangelical churches have sprouted up there in the uh, 1990s and 2000s and until today as well. And that tracks, of course, a similar thing that we saw happening with liberation theology. Because here's the thing. If you're going to evangelize people, you need to talk about God. You need to talk about Christ. You need to talk about why Christianity is true. You need to talk about why other religions, insofar as they don't match up to Christianity, are in some way deficient. So um, if you're constantly sort of deferring to whatever is the secular wisdom that was articulated 20 years ago, if you're constantly deferring to what you are projecting onto these peoples who live in the Amazonian region, you shouldn't be surprised that a lot of people in the Amazonian region are not so interested in what Catholicism has to say about these sorts of things, and the other thing, of course, is that I think that the, the underlying theme of this synod was to try and basically foist the usual progressive Western European ideas from 20 years ago onto the Catholic Church via this medium of a particular synod. I've said that on a number of occasions. I still think it's true. It's another case, another case of Western European. Western European churches, which are empty, which have no one going to them, trying to foist their secular—rather secular, I have to say—rather progressive, frankly, um, uh, very, very liberal view of the world on the rest of the church via a medium like this. It's no coincidence that so much of the funding for this came from German Catholic relief agencies, no coincidence. The Germans were heavily involved in a lot of the pre-discussions, etc. So it's hard not to be cynical about this particular synod. Uh, I don't think it's going to have as much impact as many people think it w- think it will, but it's it's symptomatic, I think, of a continual problem that we see with Western European Christians trying to advance particular agendas in a, frankly, rather neo-colonialistic way through a very patronizing view of how they, um, they view the developing world. I, I'm sure some of them do have this vision of the indigenous peoples as this type of noble savage. And look, indigenous people are no better and no worse than anyone else. They're human beings like everyone else. And so to view them as, as as having this sort of special wisdom seems to me to be problematic on a number of levels. And, you know, the, the Western countries, developed countries, churches living in, in those parts of the world, they have all sorts of problems. So I'm not claiming that somehow Western Europeans and North Americans are somehow intrinsically better or have some profound insights that everyone else is missing – But I do think this tendency to engage in this type of noble, savage mythology is deeply damaging, historically inaccurate, and clearly at odds with the gospel.
1: On that note, we will wrap up. Thank you, Sam, for walking us through this. We will link your Catholic World Report article in the show notes. Sam, thanks so much for coming on the show.
2: Thank you for having me on, John.
0: If you're liking this podcast, I wanted to take a moment to ask you to do a quick favor for our podcast team here and leave us a rating on the Apple podcast app. As this podcast gets more ratings, it helps bring the podcast more attention. I check out all the ratings and reviews that you leave because I want to make sure that you're liking what we produce for you. It helps me figure out what you like and what you want to hear more of. And if you want to contact me to let me know what you think of the podcast, you can email me at actin.org. Your feedback matters to me, so please don't hesitate to reach out. Now, back to the show.
3: Now the Soviets themselves may, in a limited way, be coming to understand the importance of freedom. We hear much from Moscow about a new policy of reform and openness. Some political prisoners have been released. Certain foreign news broadcasts are no longer being jammed. Some economic enterprises have been permitted to operate with greater freedom from state control. Are these the beginnings of profound changes in the Soviet state? Or are they token gestures intended to raise false hopes in the West or to strengthen the Soviet system without changing it. We welcome change and openness for we believe that freedom and security go together. That the advance of human liberty the advance of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. There is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. (laughs) Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall.
0: President Ronald Reagan's famous Brandenburg Gate speech, given on June 12, 1987, marked an important event in history. With his command to Mikhail Gorbachev to tear down the Berlin Wall, Reagan gave a voice to millions. Here to talk with me today about the anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall and what life was like inside East Germany before communism's collapse is Tom O'Boyle, Director of Communications at Beverly Heights Presbyterian Church in Pennsylvania. Tom, thank you for coming on to the show.
4: Thanks, Caroline. Good to talk to you.
0: Tom, you were there that day in June when Reagan gave his speech. Can you tell us a little bit about the context that you were in when you were in Germany and what you were doing there at the time?
4: Well, I was a correspondent with the Wall Street Journal at that time. Uh, he was being actually covered by the uh, the Washington Press Corps and the folks who were following him out of Washington. You know, my purpose was to uh, cover the events of that time. I had landed in Germany in 1986. Uh, had my first introduction to the Berlin Wall in February of '86. At the time in '87, in June of '87, if you if you remember what was experienced in the uh, West German uh, political situation, Gorbachev had had started a, a very aggressive peace, what appeared to be peace offensive, uh, in terms of trying to court West German public opinion. Uh, West Germany had always been uh, a very important fulcrum during the war, uh, or in the post-war period, Uh, you know, Nikita Khrushchev famously said, when I want the West to shout, I squeeze on Berlin. Uh, There had been the Berlin airlift. There had been uh, the various events uh, of the late 40s and early 50s. So at that time, Germany was in the Western alliance, but it was a divided country. Uh, uh, East Germany existed. Uh, had been created in the late 40s it was an important uh, place in terms of West East relations and various presidents had gone there for for years to call out uh, about the atrocities that were committed by the East in that in that uh, city in in Berlin. Uh, the history, Caroline was that, The Berlin Wall went up suddenly in 1961. Uh, I think it was August 13th of 1961. There was great tension at that time uh, between the East and the West. There were many, many people leaving East Germany for the West. There was no inner German, there was an inner German border, but people could pass from the East to the West. Uh, just by traveling within uh, Berlin, and there was a, quite an exodus of, of talented people that were leaving. So in August of, of uh, 1961, the Berlin Wall went up almost overnight. It was a, a barbed wire fence that went up at first, and then there was an actual wall that was created and, and start to be, started to be constructed uh, five days later.
0: Now, what kind of stories were you covering for the Wall Street Journal at the time? Is is there one story that comes to mind that you think encapsulates the human rights violations that happened in East Germany? Any particular stories that come to mind?
4: Well, some of the human rights violations uh, uh, just that I experienced myself were, were fairly um, dramatic. As a Western reporter reporting in the East, you were hassled and— and uh, jostled about quite a bit. I had one time where I was going through Checkpoint Charlie where I was taken custody for, uh, for about four hours. I was inadvertently carrying a copy of Tom Clancy's Hunt for Red October as just a, a, a book for uh, personal reading. And on the cover of the uh, original hardback edition, they had a, a red Soviet sub. And they deemed that the East German uh, Grenz police, you know the um border patrol guards, they deemed that to be contraband, so they seized it and they hassled me and put me in a in a room for uh, about four hours and then I finally said, "Look, you either have to let me pass through or I have to uh, have to return to West Berlin." And they agreed with that after having fun with me. I remember one other occasion when I was at the Grand Hotel in uh, East Berlin. Uh, Honecker, Eric Honecker, then the party chief in East Germany, had had built this Grand Hotel sort of as a a grand establishment to prove that the East was not failing as it was economically. And in the middle of the night, I think it was 3, 4 a.m., uh, I'm in my pajamas, and I hear a knock at the door, and the folks, these police come in, uh, tell me to get out of bed and, and search the uh, uh, hotel room, and armed guards, there were about three of them. Uh, and, you know, it was a fairly scary situation. I showed them my passport, my Ausweis, my German documents, and they looked it over and looked me over and left in about five minutes. That was a fairly routine kind of occurrence uh, for reporters who were covering the East Bloc during that time. Uh, Among the people themselves, one of the stories that I recall uh, recall most uh, vividly was a pastor Zemsdorf that I had visited with in February of 1988. Uh, And he was a pastor with the Lutheran Church over in East Germany. Typically Clergy uh, were not allowed to have unauthorized con- contact with Western reporters, and yet Pastor Zemsdorf had spoken out uh, quite forcefully and in- insisted that he be identified by name, uh, which was a fairly gallant act at the time. And his whole rationale was that you know, if we don't speak out Uh, about the human rights abuses and about the lack of freedom in the East and under communist rule that, you know, we won't be doing our jobs and uh, was very emphatic about that. Uh, That's one person uh, in particular that uh, I remember because he was so courageous and so gallant under the circumstances.
0: Now, you've written a few pieces about how these experiences changed your worldview. And 10 years ago, you actually wrote a piece for Grove City College's Center for Vision and Values, which is now the Institute for Faith and Freedom. Um, And in this piece, you wrote that, quote, I believed that people, and you are referring to the time before you went over to um, Germany to cover the events, you say, quote, I believed that people were mostly good, that when you died, good works paid your way into heaven, and that government by the people for the people was mostly well-intentioned. But then I encountered the barbarous Berlin Wall. It changed me forever. Can you speak more to that? How did it change your worldview?
4: Uh, yeah, Caroline, I, uh, how it changed my worldview, I guess be, I was born in 1955 and I, I guess as a child of the Cold War, I had a uh, uh, kind of a fascination with the Berlin Wall. I remember uh... talking to my mother at a very young age uh... i was probably eight or nine years old and the whole concept of a wall walling in people made no sense to me it 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 was one of those things that seemed kind of perplexing and i remember hearing about it and asking my mother about it and she was trying to explain it to me so when i finally got there in february of eighty six which was the first time i saw the wall uh, it really was something that uh, stuck in my uh, uh, in my memory. It was a it was a I was actually in Berlin for the first time. I had just arrived in Germany a month before, in January of '86, and uh, a friend, Warren Gettler, who was a, a reporter with the uh, International Herald Tribune. And I were there to cover the release of uh, Anatoly Sharansky, who was a Soviet refusenik and uh, supposed to be a spy, but he wasn't, uh, and had been in the Soviet gulag for more than a dozen years. Uh, So we were there for the release of Sharansky on the Glynica Bruka, which was the bridge, uh, the Glynica bridge that that was one of the crossing points between the West and the East at Potsdam. Um, And so it's the same bridge uh, that's featured in the movie Bridge of Spies. uh, And it's also the same bridge where the Rudolf Abel-Francis Gary Powers exchange had occurred in 1962. Uh, Powers, of course, being the, the pilot that was shot down over the Soviet Union. Um, U-2 pilot. So anyway, um, uh, Sharansky was exchanged uh, in that prisoner swap, um, and the night before, uh, Warren and I had had taken a ride out to to the viewing tower uh, where you could view into East Germany from the West, and we were right near the Reichstag building, which is, of course, the same place where Hitler's Third Reich had emanated from. Uh, the government building. And I remember just being so struck. It was a quiet, very uh, almost deadly sil- silence. There was snow, light snow falling. And it was almost as if you could hear the, the cries of the past uh, echoing that night. I think I had a worldview that was very naive, akin to what I see a lot of young people uh, saying these days about socialism a sense that the goodness of humanity would prevail uh, in all circumstances, that that people were essentially good and that they would do do the right thing. I think what I found in Germany during my experience and and in the many times I traveled over to East Germany, I got there about a dozen times during the four years that I, I covered both West and East. The barbarous things that that could be done in the name of government and the kind of control that the East German government wielded over its citizens were you know, truly barbaric. Uh, I, ha- I had not really encountered that. I mean, the most grotesque story, of course, was one of the first. Uh, you have a young man by the name of Peter Fechter, after the wall went up in 61, a year later, almost exactly on the anniversary date in 62, there was a young man. His name was Peter Fechter. Uh, he was the first person to die at the, at the edge of the Berlin Wall. And the wall wasn't, it, it was thir- about 13 foot high and, and had uh, stockeldrot, uh, uh, you know, what Germans call stockeldrot, the uh, barbed wire at the top. And it was really a series of barricades. You know, there was a, a an outer wall and then an, an inner wall, and then there was a no man's wa- land between the two walls. And Germany had perfected not just an incredible surveillance state, uh, one of the most sophisticated surveillance states in the history of mankind, but that they had also perfected all these different types of sensors and devices and and all sorts of uh, heinous uh, weaponry to, to keep people from approaching it. And so, Fechter, um, a year after the wall went up, was with a friend who actually got over the wall and threw all these barricades to the other side. Uh, Fector was shot while he was climbing it and fell to the ground, and it took him about 65 minutes to bleed to death. And during that, Wayne Buckley has a very uh, profound account, uh, moving account, gripping account of, uh, of the story in, in a book that he wrote uh, on the fall of the wall. You know, there was a, a, a big debate on the Western side. What do we do about this young man? He wasn't even quite 20 years old, I believe. Uh, and they couldn't get any authorization to do anything about it. And he bled to death. Uh, in broad daylight, you uh, know, screams—his uh, screams—being uh, piercing uh, to both the listeners on the east, uh, eastern side, and also on the western side. And there were over a hundred people who died in similar circumstances during the existence of the wall. I had never really seen that kind of barbarity in my life and to be encountered with that, you know, to actually see it up front and close and then to be back, be in the East and and, and to have traveled there many times and see what occurred to the citizenry in the Eastern state, you know, it just, it changed my worldview. It changed it fundamentally in that I went in to Germany thinking, you know, folks are generally good. And I think I came out thinking, no, that's not the case. In fact, I, you know, I probably would say that I'm today a Presbyterian. And, you know, of course, a a Calvinist in that regard. And so the whole the concept of the total depravity of man uh, really uh, was much more palpable after my German experience than it had been before.
0: Well, I'd like to highlight how much surveillance there was in East Germany because in preparation for our conversation, I learned that the the Stasi had one officer per 166 citizens in East Germany, which is amazing because for comparison, the KGB had about one agent per 5,830 citizens. Um, and also something else that you say in your piece that... It, the ratio could have even been lower in East Germany, because if you were to include in that count unofficial collaborators, the ratio is as low as one officer for every six to seven citizens, which is just amazing. I didn't know these numbers beforehand. I didn't know these stories that you tell in your piece. So do you think that this has escaped our collective memory, maybe more so than stories of other totalitarian states? And if so, why do you think that is?
4: Uh, Yeah, I definitely think it has escaped our notice. Um, Those stats came out of Buckley's book. They they were quoted by Simon Wiesenthal, uh, who certainly knew the, the, um, the Nazi apparatus. You know, in East Germany, they had the famous, uh, what they called Mitarbeiter, which were people who were paid informants. And so it did get down to about one of every five or six or seven East German citizens was somehow on a government payroll to inform on their fellow citizens. And it created a surveillance state that Buckley argues, was second to none. And based on my experience, I have to say that, that was indeed the case as well. Oh, gosh, we, we are so naive in our thinking these days about uh, so much of our politics. Um, I think there is so much freedom that we take it for granted. Uh, there is so much freedom in our communications. There's so much freedom in our social media that we... Um, assume that it has always been that way. I was always struck. I was a uh, teacher at Carnegie Mellon for 15 years until recently. And I was struck so many times by how many of my students had no, not, not even not knowledge of, of uh, the Berlin Wall in East Germany, but there was no concept of it. Uh, the idea that you could have that kind of repression—that uh, uh, was, uh, I think, anathema, frankly, to to the young person's perspective. Um, and there was also missing a sense that political freedom and economic freedom go hand in hand. You know that there was there wasn't a clear sense that once once your political your economic freedom becomes uh, becomes uh, curtailed that your, your, your political freedom will as well, because the government, by definition, will have greater control of your life. There, there doesn't seem to be a terribly developed sensibility about that among young people today, uh, which I frankly lament, because, um, you know, there doesn't, uh, whether it's... Uh, Cuba or Venezuela or any number of places uh, around the world that have, have tried uh, socialistic reform and where it has failed miserably, uh, there never seems to be a sense that that, that raises reasonable questions about, uh, about whether those systems can actually succeed.
0: So when you speak to people in younger generations and you give an explanation of what you saw Uh, happen in East Germany. What do you think is the best way to go about telling the story so that it hits home?
4: Well, I think it's the same storytelling that has always uh, worked most effectively and what we try to highlight in our own podcast uh, where we feature on individuals telling their stories. I think stories like the Peter Fechter story that I just told you about a young man who was shot and killed and and left to bleed to death in, in in the hot sun in August of 62, uh, shot by his own government, um, and the West incapable of doing anything about it because they couldn't get through in time to get authorization to help him. I think those are the sorts of stories that communicate with young people. You know, government repression only becomes real when it's about your neighbor or someone you know personally, or yourself.
0: Now, you also write in your piece about the role that the church played right before the wall fell in 1989. Can you tell us a bit about that?
4: I was in Leipzig for the first demonstration uh, on September 4th of 89, about two two months before the wall actually came down, where people would gather at the St. Nikolai Church there, in Leipzig. And, and the demonstrations that began on September 4th of 89 uh, became what they called the weekly uh, uh, Friedensgebet, uh, you know, prayer for peace. They grew and grew and grew uh, in size and in stature to a point where those demonstrations led, I think inevitably, to what the government did on November 9th, which was a sudden change of um, policy. They had always had a shoot-to-kill order. And by shoot-to-kill, that's exactly what I'm talking about. If you went into this forbidden zone, (Sperrgebiet) in German, you would be shot and killed, as Fector had been and as more than 100 people had been during the time that the Berlin Wall stood. And on the night night of uh, November 9th, The shoot-to-kill order was lifted, and Gunter Shabakowski, who was the government spokesman uh, at the nine p.m. newscast, to the disbelief of people who were listening in the West and also in the East, said the shoot-to-kill order has been rescinded. What transpired is people just ran to the ramparts, and I think an untold story is the role that the church did indeed play because the lutheran church in east germany was the one institution where general assembly was permitted by the government and it, it was kind of a quid pro quo in that the the government would allow assembly if the church would agree to maintain a, a non-political posture and that's what happened on this demonstration that I was inside the St. Nicholas Church, Nikolai Church in uh, in Leipzig, it just happened to be in Leipzig that day. Okay, I was in the East covering other stories, traveling around and went to the church and was inside it when there were about a thousand people that assembled, praying for peace, praying for uh, an ability to uh, have freedoms and enjoy them. And then the thousand parishioners that were inside spilled out into the courtyard and started a chant, we want out. Those demonstrations that occurred every Monday for uh, the weeks leading up to uh, the Shabakowski statement on November 9th, uh, every week, people assembled in greater and greater numbers. And so Leipzig, the church in Leipzig, the Lutheran church there, became um, a a real center of the protest that grew greater and greater and greater to a point where the, um, the government, I think, decided that they couldn't control it any longer. So f- faith and the church had a very uh, profound role in the events as they uh, transpired. And that's not something that gets a lot of publicity or gets written about much in the the official histories, or at least I haven't seen too much of it. But I know that for a fact to have been the case. Uh, And so in this case, faith really was an important uh, lubricant in establishing political freedoms that eventually led to the falling of the Berlin Wall. Thereafter, several years thereafter, the fall of uh, communism completely in the Eastern Bloc with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, It's quite a story and it it really does uh, demonstrate the kind of uh, the passion of the human heart for, for freedom and how that cannot be ultimately controlled by any government agency.
0: I don't think that we could end on a better note. So, Tom, thank you so much for joining me today.
4: Yeah, thanks, Carolyn. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening today. Before I close out, I wanted to let you know that Tom O'Boyle produces his own podcast at Beverly Heights Presbyterian Church, and it's called The Scattered Seeds Podcast. That's The Scattered Seeds Podcast. Every week on the show, Tom sits down with someone who shares how Jesus Christ has changed their lives. I personally love storytelling podcasts, and this is a great one. If you like listening to people telling their own stories, you can go to scatteredseedspodcast.com to see all their episodes and subscribe. Lastly, to learn more about the Acton Institute and what we do, visit our website at acton.org. This episode of Acton Line was produced and edited by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Doug Nagel.